I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and open them up. Uh, one of our elders, John Timmons, will come forward in just a moment. But I want to tell you what we're going to do this morning. For about near, nearly a month, we've been immersed in the second and third chapters of Peter's first letter written to churches in his day, but still applicable to the church in our day. And I just really quickly wanted to tell you how we got to where we are. We got here by way of, of Peter opening his letter. You might remember this by recounting the significance and the glory of the gospel. From describing this, what we have been given by God in Jesus Christ, Peter then went on to describe who we are because of all this, by following Jesus, who we become. Peter told us that even though we find ourselves as exiles, even though we feel like we're living in a foreign land, we are a chosen people. We are a royal nation, a holy priesthood. We are living stones being built into the temple of the Lord, the citizens, the very citizens of the kingdom of God. And with this foundation in mind, Peter then went on to exhort us to live out of all we have received through the gospel, to, if you will, reflect our new emerging and eternal identity in Christ. He specifically said that we ought to live such good lives among the pagans, the non-believers. We ought to live such good lives that they will glorify God because of our good deeds. And Peter has detailed for us in these last few weeks what this looks like in our civil relationships, our relationships to the government, our workplace relationships, and our interpersonal relationships, specifically marriage, but extending beyond that. And his instructions about how we're to live in this world have all centered, as you remember, around a single theme, submission. We're going to spend this morning recapping briefly what Peter has taught us about submission. And we're going to do this by way of some specific questions you've asked You've handed to me or emailed to me during the week. And then we'll finish by considering Peter's own closing words on this topic. With that in mind, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, as one of our elders, John Timmons, is going to come forward and read to us from chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Uh-huh. Good morning. You can find today's uh, verse on page 851 in your pew Bibles. 1 Peter Three, chapter, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good, they must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. So we're going to come back to Peter's words here. Keep your finger sort of on that section of the Bible so you can open back up to it. We're going to keep, come back to Peter's words in a little bit. But for now, let's review. One of the, 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 the sort of the foundational places that we've started as we looked at these passages in Peter is that many consider submission to be synonymous with weakness or inferiority. But what we've learned is biblical submission is not mindless compliance. Submission is not forced. It's not a strong-armed surrender. Submission, biblically, is an intentional deference to another person. It's freely and graciously allowing something to go someone else's way instead of my way. 
As Christians, the reason we submit to all authority is because we recognize all human authority, good or bad, is allowed to exist and is ultimately answerable to our Heavenly Father. And this sort of base understanding leads to one of the first questions that, that you asked. And there were several questions. I sort of consolidated them by theme. So if your specific question isn't being answered, I'm trying to. And otherwise, we'd be here for a long, long time. I'm trying to in terms of sort of bringing them together. So the first question that many of you had was, how can I submit to God? How can I submit to a God who allows me to suffer? And that's a really good question, but it's a very, very big one. And so... In, in, in addressing a question like this, I always assume when this is being asked that someone is asking this not out of a place of distance, but out of a place of intimately suffering right now. And so I want to be very sensitive to that fact. And part of that, whether you're experiencing suffering right now or you're just sort of intellectually engaging this question, is to recognize that whatever answer I give any of us give, the answer is incomplete. Because we don't have God's mind. We don't have God's eyes. A scripture that comes to mind that speaks to this reality of the incompleteness of our knowledge is a, a words that Paul writes in one of his first letters, to his letters to the Corinthians, when he writes, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial, he writes, and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So, just to step back, and I, I'm not just in terms of today's sermon, but trying to model something for you in your own conversations when you get questions like these. What I want to say to you is all I can offer you is what I believe based upon the witness of Scripture. My beliefs are not devoid of questions or doubts. It's important you hear me say that. My beliefs are not devoid of questions or doubts, which is why what I believe is always a marriage between what I know or think I know, and what I take on faith, not with full understanding or even agreement, but trust. Therefore, by way of answering this question, based on the revelation of Scripture, I believe God is good. And all that God created before sin is perfectly good. God is not the author of evil or death, but God does allow both to exist. Why? Because again, based upon the witness of the Bible, God is love. John explicitly comes out and says this. I believe that God has always existed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together in a relationship of perfect love. Since love is the essence of God, I believe love is the highest value in all creation. I believe God created human beings so we could experience and participate in his love. However, for God to give us the ability to love, God had to give us the free will to decide whether to love or not to love. Because love, you see, always involves a choice. Love cannot be programmed. Love potion number nine aside. Love cannot be programmed. Love cannot be forced. If you will, love must be submitted to. Therefore, love always involves a choice. The possibility, the allowance of evil, suffering, and death are the consequences of having that choice to love or not to love. 
In the beginning, evil came into creation and infected us all when our first parents chose to not love God and to not love each other, as we looked at last week. I believe there is no true love. There is no real love apart from God. Apart from God, there is only evil, suffering, death. Evil continues to spread. Suffering continues to exist. Death continues to haunt this world through our repetition of our parents' first actions. Evil continues to spread. Suffering continues to exist. And death continues to haunt our world because we replicate their example of choosing not to love God and not to love each other. In a variety of different ways, for a variety of different reasons, and a variety of different levels of intensity, we replicate that choice. I believe God allows us to suffer. But I also believe God promises to redeem and reconcile our suffering. Our suffering is not in vain. Our suffering is not empty. Please listen to me very carefully right now, especially if you are someone in the midst of suffering. What I have just said does not mean there is always meaning or purpose in our suffering. There is not always meaning or purpose in our suffering, but it does mean that God refuses to allow our suffering, whatever it is, to be meaningless. He refuses to let our suffering remain unanswered. Love doesn't come easy for us. Love doesn't come easy for us because as humans, in the abuse and corruption of our free will, submission, as we've talked about, is no longer our natural inclination. Our default is to push back. We've talked about this. Our default is to get our own way. Our default is to resist authority, including God's. And what results because of this is a vicious cycle that we all know too well. A tragic spiral of needless suffering and death as we just keep hurting ourselves and hurting each other. Consciously and unconsciously, directly and indirectly. For many of us, I don't even think we have the, sh the foggiest idea of how much the choices we make, which we often think have nothing to do with anyone else, hurt and impact not only the people within our own circles, but people in places and parts of the world that we don't even know. We're part of this vicious cycle of needless suffering and death almost despite ourselves. And the only way the cycle is broken is by God himself who, please listen carefully, by God himself who submits to us, who submits to the madness, who submits to the consequence of our chaos and sin. Because Jesus submits before all human authority, because Jesus submits to his Father's will, sin is defeated, death is conquered. Resurrection happens and we are born anew. Submission is a consequence of our salvation in Christ, as Lee said to us a couple of weeks ago. Unless Christ submits, we die. Unless we submit to Christ, we will never truly live. Jesus sets us free to submit because he gives us a will in his forgiveness and his grace that is no longer tainted or corrupted because we no longer have anything to prove. There's no longer anything to earn. There's no longer anything to justify True submission begins by exercising this will towards Christ for Christ. Not out of fear, not out of obligation, but by faith and in love. And when we experience this relationship with Christ, we suddenly 
And Peter has talked about this and other scriptural writers talk about it. There's a different kind of suffering that comes into our lives. There's a different kind of suffering that comes from submitting to Jesus. All suffering is not this kind of suffering. This suffering is, is part of submitting, following Jesus. And it's twofold. When we submit to Christ, there is the suffering born of old habits that die hard. Old habits that die hard. If we are being transformed and changed, there is pain that's involved. Because if the way of life that we've known is not the way of life that is healthy, that is good for us, then we have to be transformed. And that means we have to be changed. And that means, as the expression says, that the old habits we have die hard. And if there's anyone here who's ever directly or indirectly come in contact with someone who's broken an addiction in their life, you know what I'm talking about. The headaches, the shakes, the cold sweats, the, just the bare physical manifestations of being broken of an addiction. Magnify that on a spiritual, emotional, and mental level. We suffer because old habits die hard. Being changed and being transformed is not easy. But there's also the suffering that comes in Christ from seeing the world as God sees it. We have another expression. We like to say ignorance is bliss. It's sometimes we think helpful to turn a blind eye, but when we have submitted to Christ, suddenly we see the world as God sees it. And when we bear Jesus' heart for the brokenness of the world, we suffer. We suffer because we see the chaos. We see the madness, the destruction beyond the circle of what we know, but in a much bigger way, and it hurts. It's painful. And to shy away from this kind of suffering would leave us stuck in our bad habits. To shy away from this kind of suffering would leave us immature and childish. By way of an analogy, I think about my own children, having children, and all of us have either had children or watched from afar. You bring children into this world. You bring children into this world and then all of a sudden, you know, it's all just playtime and, and, you know, it's, you know, everything's great until all of a sudden you, you start to have to teach them things. They have to brush their teeth. They have to clean their rooms. To learn things, they have to do their homework in order to pass tests. And it's not fun. It's, it's painful. And oftentimes they're frustrated. But the room isn't going to magically clean itself. The teeth aren't magically going to be, you know, stay, stay healthy. You're not automatically going to learn things just because all of a sudden you show up. And in the process of that, there's suffering in the homework that has to be done, in the room that has to get cleaned, in the teeth that have to be brushed. Add whatever you want. And then as my children grow up, there's that other part of suffering too, is that I have to watch them as they grow, begin to see the world no longer through the eyes of innocence, but through the eyes of brokenness. They experience friends who aren't true. They experience that people lie, that people cheat, that people steal. They experience their own temptation to participate in those very same things. And I can try to hide that from them. I can try to shelter them. But the reality is, the more that I hide and shelter that, them from it, the more they're not going to be prepared and equipped for what they are going to face, to how to engage that. And at some point, my children might turn to me, and maybe someday they will, and they go, you know, this was great. You brought us into a world where we have to clean our room, brush our teeth, got to do homework, we got to do all this stuff, and people are out there lying and stabbing us in the back and cheating us, and there's all kinds of temptations we have to face. What? Why did you decide to have kids anyway? (laughs) 
Why did you decide to have kids anyway? Because your mom and I love each other and we wanted to share that love with you. We wanted you to experience the love that we have. We wanted you to experience what love is. Well, yeah, you know what? You can keep it. This is what God says in the midst of the, the suffering that we experience in this world. This is the kind of suffering, the suffering that we just talked about, not all suffering, the suffering we just talked about in Christ. This is the kind of suffering I believe Paul is writing about when he talks about suffering that produces character and character that produces hope. Because when we suffer of, from old habits dying hard, when we suffer from seeing the world through God's eyes, this is the kind of suffering that brings character and brings hope because this is the kind of suffering that brings us closer to God. That leads us to the next question. Do I have to? This was great. <laughs> Do I have to? Do I have to submit? And in one sense, if you've been listening, the answer is no. We have the freedom to choose. But on the other, on the other hand, the answer, if you've been listening, is yes. For it is only when we use the freedom that we have been given to choose wisely that we remain free in the midst of the outcomes. Just as a train is only free when it runs on the tracks, so human beings are only free when they obey God. True freedom, you see, is living righteously in submission to God. Anything less, anything less than what I've just said, anything less inevitably, not right away, but inevitably leads, leaves us subject to, addicted to, enslaved to our own desires. Anything less finds us looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for acceptance, looking for security, but never really finding it. I've said this many, many times, but it always comes to mind and it works. Bob Dylan wrote a great song and it's true. You gotta serve somebody and you might as well change the words to you gotta submit to somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna submit to somebody. See, what's interesting about this question is most people think, we all, I think we all tend to think at first that freedom and submission are opposites. We assume that if we choose submission, that means we have to give up freedom. And if we choose freedom, then we don't have to submit to anyone. But this assumption is a fallacy if we practically think it through. <sighs> I have a guitar, but I don't know how to play it. I got this guitar several years ago when God began to call me into ministry, and I noticed, I don't know if you've seen this pattern, that everybody gets called into ministry has a guitar, and they know how to play it. <laughs> and I thought I should get it, and I should learn how to play it and sing, because otherwise I might not ever call to be pastoring anywhere. But you called me anyway, even though I don't know how to play the guitar. I have it. I can bring it out for you, but I don't know how to play it. <laughs> I've had it for years, but I can't seem to figure out how to get beyond strumming. I mean, I'll pull that thing out. It sounds pretty good to me, but it ain't music. Now suppose someone who does know how to play the guitar offers to teach me. Let's say Drew offers to teach me. He sets up a schedule with me. He creates lessons. He has pieces of music that he's laid out for me to learn. Great. But I don't always show up. I ignore some of the advice that Drew seeks to give me. I, I'm not consistently practicing my finger techniques because, man, that hurts. That's painful. I'll just do it my way. And so you know what? I can't progress beyond a few songs, maybe one or two. Will I ever learn to play the guitar? No. Why? Because I'm not committed to learning and practicing how to play the guitar. 
But what if I submitted to the demands of Drew's leadership? What if I submitted to Drew's teaching? What if I submitted to untold hours of building up the strength of my fingers, the music memory of chords, the muscle memory of chords, and the finger techniques so that I can play increasingly difficult pieces? In one sense, I would lose my free time. But in another sense, I would learn how to play and enjoy the guitar. I would learn how to have the freedom to play like Drew. Beloved, the question is, do we want the freedom, the joy of loving others and serving like Jesus? Do we want the freedom of experiencing the intimacy and certainty of the Father's presence like Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then we have to submit to Christ. Next question. How can I be sure submitting to people is not just a form of passive-aggressive control? This is a really good question, isn't it? Yeah, I'll let, you let it sink in for a second. How can I be sure submitting to people is not just a form of passive-aggressive control? True submission, as we've learned it, involves more than mere obedience. True submission, if you're really getting it scripturally, is first and foremost an attitude of the heart. Let's, only God knows. I mean, let's make this clear. Only God knows if we're truly submitting to him or to another person. Only God knows. And let's be honest. It's easy to fool or deceive another person, even ourselves, in the sense that we appear to be submitting, but our act of submission is a means of gaining influence or keeping some measure of control. You all tracking with me? Biblical submission is not about holding on to control. Biblical submission is about surrendering control. It's about not wielding control in an explicit or an implicit passive-aggressive manner. So how do I know? Okay, so how do I know if I'm authentically submitting to God or authentically, authentically submitting to another person? How do I know? In prayer, with God as a part of the conversation, really important, please hear that part. With, in prayer, with God as a part of the conversation, not just in my own head, because I lie to myself all the time. With God as a part of the conversation, I need to check my motivations. I need to check my intent. I need to check my expectations. And if I'm seeking to hold on to any measure of control in any or all of these areas, my motivations, my intent, my expectations, then I'm not fully submitting. In short, if I'm focused on what's in it for me, either now or in the future, I'm not fully submitting. You know, when I preached last week, we have a great example of this, often this wrestling in marriage, where submission becomes passive-aggressive in a marriage when a spouse says something like this, well, I'll submit and be the husband I'm supposed to be when she submits and becomes the wife she's supposed to be. Or I don't say it, but I submit, basically saying the only reason why I'm submitting is to kick you in the butt to do what you should be doing. And when you don't do it, then all of a sudden, I'm not submitting anymore. That's speaking to this question. You see, honest submission, honest submission involves discerning the mind of the one to whom we are submitting and seeking to embrace their mind to the degree that is possible. So for example, a submissive employee should endeavor to determine how his or her employer wants things done and then seek to do it that way. As children, young or old, whether you're still in the house or you've grown up and have kids of your own, as children, young or old, we should seek not only to mind our parents, 
but to learn the mind of our parents and act accordingly. And so the difference between we all experience this as kids, we all have that ability to know what our parents want to see versus embracing what our parents want us to learn, what our parents want us to understand. Which leads us to our last question. How can I submit and still be in opposition to something or someone? They don't seem like they go together, and Peter has put them together, and Paul does this too. How can I submit and still be in opposition to something or someone? Remember, submission biblically is not blind obedience. We're never called to throw away discernment. We're never called to throw away honesty. We're never called to, called to throw away our integrity. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus, as witnesses of Christ in our culture, is engagement without compromise. As citizens of heaven, but travelers here and now, we must look, and that means we have to pay attention, we must look for where non-Christian values intersect with the way of Christ. And whenever we find overlap between the two, we ought to adopt and live those practices in support and friendship towards others. In the places where we will morally compromise our identity in Christ, in the places where we'll falsely represent the character of Jesus, we must humbly and respectfully not participate. No human authority is absolute. What God commands always trumps the decrees and compulsions of our humanity. Submission doesn't mean we can't speak out against things that are wrong. Submission doesn't mean we don't work to make the situation better. Disagreeing with, though, or protesting against unjust or ineffective leadership does not, however, supersede our ability to submit. We can pray for those with whom we disagree. That is a form of submission. We can pray for those, and when I say pray, I don't mean begrudgingly pray. I mean sincerely pray for those with whom we disagree. You know the difference, right? Yeah, Lord, whatever. Bless them, Lord, yeah, because that's what you do. Fine, yeah. Versus authentically, sincerely praying for those for whom we disagree. That's a form of submission. We can support the role of people who we disagree with. The role, not speaking evil of them, showing them honor and respect in terms of their role, in terms of how we treat them. We can obey them as much as we can in good conscience. Because we disagree doesn't mean it's an absolute zero-sum game where what we disagree with means we can't obey them at all. We often tend to go to that place. Well, if we have a disagreement here, then it's all, we're done. We can still obey in good conscience in the places where we can agree. Here's the other part of this, though. If our commitment to Christ results ultimately in us having to leave our job, if our commitment to Christ ultimately results in us having to face a consequence from protesting, the key is we can't suddenly turn around and claim divine exemption from the consequence. In such situations, this is so important, and this is probably where it really sticks. In such situations, accepting the consequences is part of the attitude of humble submission to authority, even authority with whom we disagree. And Drew touched on this when he preached several weeks ago. It's a good example of the difference during the civil rights movement of the approach of Martin Luther King Jr. and the approach of Malcolm X, who, by the way, later changed in a lot of his views. Malcolm, Martin Luther King did not back down from what he thought was unjust and unfair, but he experienced the consequences. And he didn't say those consequences were good. He didn't say he deserved them, but he ultimately understood that that was part of protesting, part of recognizing authority. Accepting the consequences 
of submission can often lead to suffering. But I really want to be clear on this because for some of you, I, this is so. This is a place where if you're not listening carefully, we can get big trouble here. Submission can often lead to suffering, but submission doesn't mean we stay in an abusive or toxic situation. Again, submission is not about us losing discernment, honesty, or integrity. If you're in an abusive or toxic situation, you don't have to stay in it because you're submitting to the Lord. But here's the thing, and this is what I think we need to understand, is that even if we don't stay in an abusive or toxic situation, submission still results in suffering. I mean, and this is the, sort of the paradox we see of someone who's being abused by someone that they care for and they leave that situation as they should, yet it's painful for them because they still love that person even though they're being abused by that person. There's still suffering in the midst of that. It happens in marriages where, God forbid, divorce takes place, but divorce doesn't end suffering because there's a pain that comes in divorce. Submission and suffering often but not always go hand in hand. We don't talk about this enough in the church. We almost need to have more conversations, not like this, but together, because we will at times suffer for Christ, just as Christ suffered for us. Jesus explicitly tells us this in the Gospels. But here's the thing we hold on to when we do suffer for Christ. Like Jesus, through Christ, we trust our suffering will not be in vain. That our redemption, like his, will come. And this is why in such purposeful and confident yielding before all forms of human authority, in trusting the greater sovereignty and justice of God, as Lee told us when he preached several weeks ago, submission is therefore often the deepest expression of our faith. Submission is often the deepest expression of our faith. And that brings us to today's passage. Peter concludes this section of his letter by considering the essential characteristics needed in order to be mutually submitted to each other, in order to stand together in the midst of suffering, trials, and hardships that may come. And for Peter, living a life of submission to God and to each other is about two things, having the right attitude and engaging others from the proper perspective. Peter talks first about the right attitude, and there are several ways he defines that attitude. He says that right attitude begins with harmony. Interesting thing, the operative principle of a cult is conformity. The operative principle of a cult is conformity. The operative principle for followers of Jesus is harmony. Submission is not blind obedience. It's not conformity. Submission, biblical submission, is the harder work of mutually attending to, listening, observing, and serving each other. And if you've ever been a part of a group project, you know that harmony does not come without the mutual effort of submission. Consider an orchestra made up of different musicians with a wide variety of instruments and the fact that some of them may play different parts with the same kind of instrument. In a good orchestra, meaning one that doesn't hurt your ears, in a good orchestra, every member plays the same song, but they all follow the leadership of one conductor. And those who play the same instrument have to listen to each other and work together. Beloved, with all of our differences, our different life experiences, our different preferences, our different skills, our different gifts, our harmony together as the church comes from playing the same song, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes from trusting him as our conductor. But we have to listen and pay attention to each other, and through his word and spirit, we have to work together. That's why if we're an 8.30 service and a 10.30 service, we're not in harmony. 
That's why if we're 50 plus and older and 50 and younger, we're not in harmony. That's where when we fragment and segment each other in the church, we're not in harmony. Harmony comes by being put together and oftentimes it's awkward because we don't all speak the same language and we all don't engage in the same way, but being put together, trusting on the word and the spirit, we learn how to be brought into harmony together. Peter goes on. Peter says the right attitude is not just about harmony. The right attitude is also about being sympathetic. The term sympathetic that's there in your Bible is a compound word made up of the root word suffer and the prefix with. Sympathetic means to suffer with. As followers of Jesus, we are to be united on the truth, but we also need to be ready to sympathize with the pain of others, even those we don't know. We must share in the feelings of others, in their sorrows as well as their joys. Because here's the thing, and you're going to start to see a pattern as I go further. In the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist. Sympathy. If you want to know you're truly submitted to another person, are you sympathetic towards them? Are you willing to suffer with them? Peter says harmony, sympathy, love is the part of the right attitude of being together. Jesus commanded us as his disciples, we all know this, to love each other. Jesus explicitly said not only for us to love each other, but to love our neighbors and even to love our enemies and our persecutors. In fact, Jesus explicitly tells us, nobody doesn't beat around the bush on this. Jesus explicitly says, we don't often remember this, that the clearest and most obvious indicator that we are in fact following him is our love for each other expressed through service. It's in our love to each other in the world that we most visibly demonstrate that we belong to and we are following him. Once again, notice the pattern. Love of God and love of man go hand in hand. One cannot exist without the other in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. The love that Jesus demonstrated and points us towards is this unselfish affection and service of another person. And that kind of service begins in the church among believers and extends out into the world. You see, if we can't practice that here, then there's no way we're going to practice it out there. If we can't submit to each other, love each other here, rather than take our ball and go home, or separate ourselves from each other, then we're not going to do it out there. Peter says harmony, sympathy, love, but then Peter says compassion. If sympathetic refers to our commitment to know how others are doing, compassionate refers to our emotional response to the state of others. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in the Gospels, compassion is a characteristic that's prominent in the life and ministry of Jesus. All the Gospel writers, in the midst of telling, setting the scene for us of what's going on, on more than one occasion tell us Jesus had compassion for the people. And it was out of that compassion, that emotional response to the state of others, not only recognizing suffering with them, but engaging their pain, that Jesus healed, that Jesus taught, that Jesus encouraged others. We are called to be compassionate, harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate. And then Peter brings it all together in terms of the right attitude, which probably with, 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 with what is the linchpin of submission, humility. Humility is the spirit that drives submission. Humility is the recognition of our weaknesses and our limitations. Humility recognizes strengths too. Please hear that. Humility recognizes strengths too. But here's the thing. Humility knows that any strengths we recognize come from God, not from us. And humility is not just required of those who are younger. 
You ever notice that that's kind of how we frame humility? As I am turning in my 40s, I'm getting more and more accustomed to saying, and I'm, it's God's working on this in my own life, that it's not just about, hey, respect your elders. Hey, it's not just about, hey, know your place. Biblically, that doesn't hold any water. Humility is not an age thing. Humility is across the board that we are to recognize our, our need to submit to each other, regardless of age, gender, or anything. A follower of Jesus is humble because he or she is constantly aware of his or her utter dependence on God. A follower of Jesus is humble because he, they recognize that for themselves, not about anybody else, for themselves, they can't do anything apart from Christ. Having the right attitude, harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, humility. Peter closes by pressing us that, that, that the right attitude results in us keeping the proper perspective in terms of how we engage others and how specifically we engage others, especially in situations where we're treated poorly or badly. And that proper perspective is about blessing. How do we engage people, especially people who are hurting us, who are treating us badly, Peter says we are to bless them. We are to bless them because we have been blessed. Because we have been blessed, Peter writes, because we have been called to inherit a blessing. We seek to bless others regardless of our circumstances or their treatment of us. In another New Testament letter, James reinforces this idea when he argues, notice this pattern again, James argues it's inconsistent to bless God, the creator of all people, and then to curse people. You can't with the same mouth bless God and then curse everybody. Blessing and cursing cannot both go together in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. See, for Peter, as you read it, our future destiny should determine our present conduct because our future hope is that of blessing, that God will bless us. Our present relationships should be characterized by being a blessing to others. But if you got those Bibles open, look down because Peter wants us to understand when he talks about a future hope, this future hope isn't just a faraway reality. The experience of God's blessing that Peter is talking about is as close as tomorrow. The experience of God's blessing is as real and as substantial as this present moment. To show that what he is teaching is nothing new, Peter turns, as you'll notice in your Bible, to the words of David in Psalm 34. But notice, if you go and look at Psalm 34, that Peter begins quoting the psalm at the point where David is singing of God's promise of blessing in the present, in the moment. Because what Peter wants us to see, the blessings of the good life is more, about, is more than when we die and go to heaven. The blessings of the good life is the fullest enjoyment of the days God gives us in this life as well as in the next. My friends, only a follower of Jesus is free to recognize and enjoy the goodness of this life. Because it's only one who is not dependent upon, who can do without the pleasures of the world, that you can most enjoy them. Notice what I said. I didn't say you can't enjoy the pleasures of the world. I said only someone who's not dependent upon that, who isn't, doesn't absolutely need that, can truly enjoy them. On the other hand, as we've talked about, those who are enslaved to their desires, those who are submitted to disordered love of money, sex, power, popularity, such people are not free. 
They are compelled to live in that vicious cycle we talked about of seeking goodness and pleasure only as they seek goodness and pleasure in these disordered places, only to lose a little piece of themselves every time they draw from the poison well of their addictions. And as they do so, they don't become more alive. They increasingly become the living dead. They will lie. Peter writes, they will beg, borrow, and steal. They will do evil to satisfy their craving. They will do evil to satisfy their craving, even though it is killing them and hurting others. And some of us in this life, in this room, have lived this life. You know this life for yourself or for others around you. This is real. Peter, quoting David, says, free people, people who are living the good life out of the blessings that are ours in Christ, are committed to living truthfully. They do not practice deceit. They are opposed to lying, deception, and hypocrisy. They recognize that mere existence, just surviving, is not the art. It's not the joy of truly living. They understand the goodness, the blessings of this life is not only to know God, but to make him known, to share his blessings with others. Too many of us in the church think that the blessing stops with knowing God. You are not living the fullness of the good life if you're not experiencing the blessing of not only knowing God, but sharing God with those around you. Perhaps this is another way in closing. This is another way to think about what the call of submission is really about. Submission is about recognizing we are blessed to be a blessing. Submission is answering the call to bless others, to express God's goodness to them, God's grace to them, regardless of whether or not they deserve it, regardless of whether or not they earn it. After all, isn't this how we first encountered God's goodness and God's grace? We're several weeks now into this reading of Peter's first letter to the church, recorded letter to the church. And together, we've been listening as Peter has addressed this collection of small Christian communities who were living as a persecuted minority scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But if you know your history, what should be striking you as you read this letter, if you know your history, we know that this diminutive band of believers ends up transforming the greatest empire in the world at that time. How did this happen? How did the tiniest seed of faith take root and spread to the whole Roman world in as little as 100, 300 years? That's not a lot of time. 300 years. More importantly, how can this happen again in a world where the church is perceived as marginal and irrelevant at best and hypocritical and abusive at worst? Peter's answer, Jesus' command is submission. The world is changed. Faith is imparted. Salvation comes not by withdrawal, not by accommodation, not by going on the offensive, but through submission, by lovingly serving others above our own interests, by seeking to be a blessing in the lives of others rather than a curse. My friends, are you, are we a blessing in the lives of people around us or are we a curse? 
We must be careful not to place the wrong emphasis on the word submission. Walk away and hear this. We can't put the wrong emphasis on the word submission. If we're preoccupied with what we have to do, if we're preoccupied with what our rights are, instead of being preoccupied with what we're empowered to give, instead of being preoccupied of how we can better love each other, we'll miss the blessing of submission. When we submit, there is blessing, the blessing of peace in letting go and letting God. When we submit, we enable others to experience the blessing of living no longer in fear, but by faith as they discover the freedom of lowering their defenses and their guard before God and their fellow man as well. Understood in this way, the blessing of submission is a blessing that is not only received by us, but shared between us. To trust God's promises and provision by yielding our own impulses and desires for the well-being of another person transforms not only how we live in this world, but affects how we exist in this life we share. My friends, an empire like Rome was converted by Christ in the same way a single life is. Not by being overpowered by the force of will, but by being overwhelmed by the force of love expressed through service. Let us then submit to God and to one another. Amen.